Just let me pray uh, quickly for Paul as he brings a message to us. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for uh, Paul. Thank you for the things that you've been teaching him during the last few weeks as he brings a message to us. Father, would you help us to have our ears open? Would you help us not to be distracted, Lord God, that we might hear from you this morning and be changed? Uh, Just pray for Paul uh, now, Father, for clarity uh, for his words, but we also pray particularly that your spirit speaks through him today. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Paul. Well, we're going to be talking a lot about um, difficult waters this morning as we're looking at Acts 27 and, um, you know, Melancoth and the Wellers, you guys are experienced that firsthand, you know, you're in the thick of it. So um, there's a lot of what's going to be said today, which I think will be really relevant to that situation and the situation that it varies, you know, but we all end up in those waters at some point. But before we get into the thick of Acts 27, um, I'm going to give you an opportunity, which you can thank me for later. Um, I'm going to give you the opportunity to make a bit of a guilty admission. Guilty admissions are those admissions you don't make very often, but there's something in you which feels, you know what, I probably should fess up to this at some point. I want you to put your hands in the air if you watch this show. Or at least mildly looking forward to Australian Survivor. John and... It's about the Rabs and the Lewis family. is about the only one putting their hands up right now. Cam, and I mean, there's a lot of other hands in hearts, maybe. Now, it's not the most wholesome of TV shows, and that's okay. But, look, there's some things that you learn about Survivor, which I think is interesting to watch each season, okay? Because Survivor is a group of people who are put in incredibly harsh and difficult conditions. They have enormous challenges which are thrown their way. And the things that's interesting, or that I find interesting when I watch Survivor, is to see how they respond, all right? And usually they respond by systematically forming these alliances. They fend for themselves as best they can. They try and get their own advantage and usually to the disadvantage of everyone around them. They try to undermine most people around them pretty systematically and essentially do everything they can to promote themselves and their own interests at the expense of everyone they're competing against. Now, I know it's a game show, but I think there's a bit of truth that you see in Survivor that... It's often in difficult and hard times when the pressure is put on us that the true nature of our heart starts to come out. And it's often not a great sight. Now, and we know this in our own lives, right? We know that when we ourselves are put under difficult circumstances, you know, when work might be stressful, when our kids are being hard to manage, when marriages can be struggling, when um, our health can deteriorate, All those things can reveal at times the true nature of our heart. It's when it starts to overflow out, isn't it? You know, it can impact on our behaviour. It can impact on our language. It can impact on our patience and our tolerance, things that we used to be okay with. Suddenly we've got a bit of a short fuse. Um, But all those things, although they aren't insignificant, they're just the outward expression of an inward issue, aren't they? That's just the visible stuff of what's really, of the in, and they, they really, uh, they reflect an invisible issue that we really need to deal with. For it's ultimately, it's our hearts that shape who we are as people, and it's our hearts that shape the way we live. Now in today's passage, Paul is placed under incredible pressure. He's, uh, he's a captive of the Roman Empire, he's on his way to trial, he's venturing through difficult waters, he interacts with a hurricane-like storm, he's then shipwrecked, Um, The crew on that try to kill him, but then they persuade him. uh, He gets through that. He lands on an island called Malta. And then at Malta, he's bitten by a venomous snake. And then he's got to deal with the local islanders and all of their exotic diseases. All in a chapter and a bit, okay? Now, he's put under incredible hardships and difficulties. But in the midst of that, 
He never seems to compromise his witness. He maintains the respect of all the people around him. He's clearly well respected amongst the crew. He never seems to alter his behaviour significantly and it never seems to shake his confidence in a mighty God. When pressure is applied to Paul, what reveals is the heart of a faithful servant. And so as we go through Acts 27 and the first 10 verses of 28, I'd like us to observe Paul's conduct in the midst of everything, all the chaos that's going on, and, and ask the question about what it reveals about his heart. Not so we can then go away and try and be mini-Pauls in our own lifestyle, but so we too can ask the question about what's going on in our heart and whether our heart can better reflect the heart of a faithful servant. All right, so let's have a look at Acts 27, okay? Now, if you've got Bibles, I'd recommend that you um, pull them out because we're going to cover a lot of territory. And I'm not going to read through the passage word for word because it's a long narrative. So I'll give you an overview of what's happening and then I'll signpost you to particular verses as we go along. First of all, a bit of context. Paul's been speaking. Ever since he was converted on the road to Damascus, he's been speaking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the fact that salvation is through him and him alone. That met him with quite a bit of opposition from the local Jews, okay? Um, And as a result, he was hauled before the Jewish Sanhedrin. There was a difference of opinion around what he was saying. Violence breaks out, so they put him in custody, really just to keep Paul safe and also to keep the peace. Then he appears before Felix, and Felix doesn't really want to make a decision on the issue, so he just leaves him there. Then he ends up before Festus and King Agrippa, and they both lean towards letting him go. But if you remember what John talked about, uh, he, Paul actually appealed to Caesar. He appealed to Rome. So they said, well then, to Rome you will go. And that's where you pick up the narrative at the start of Acts 27. He's about to get on the ship and he's literally about to get shipped off to Rome in order to face um, trial before Caesar. Now he's placed in the custody, you can see in verse 1, he's placed in the custody of a Roman centurion named Julius. And they set sail along um, different ports on the coast of Asia. They land at Sidon, and from there it says in verse 4, the the winds were against them as they headed to Cyprus. They arrive at a place called Myra and change to a different ship which was sailing to Italy. And it says in verse 7, they made slow headway for many days and had difficulty. The wind did not allow us to sail the course, so we sailed to Crete. They're fighting against these winds and it's taking them on a course that they wasn't really their preferred option. Then they moved along the coast, it says, with great difficulties before arriving at Fairhaven. And in verse 9, you sort of get one of those summary verses. Much time had been lost. Sailing had already become dangerous by now, for it was after, uh, it was after the fast. This journey had clearly been a struggle. The winds were against them. They'd been fighting into these winds all the way along. They hadn't really been able to make the progress that they wanted to. It had steered them on a course that they didn't really want to take. And now it was up to the time of fast, which was around October, November. So it's heading into their winter months. So they're looking for somewhere to take safe harbour for the winter. Because right now they're on an island of Crete, okay? If you can imagine my fist is a beautiful island of Crete, they're at the point where they're moving around the coast. They get to Fairhaven. But the next leg is right away across the Adriatic Sea over to Italy and Rome. Okay? So they've got to make a big voyage. You don't really want to do that in the thick of winter. So they're looking for somewhere to harbour for the winter months before it's a bit safer to make that journey across the Adriatic Sea. At the moment they're in Fairhaven, but there becomes a discussion about whether we go along one more point to Phoenix. 
They're not saying, let's go to Italy yet. They're saying, let's just move one more to Phoenix. Okay? Now, this is when Paul offers a bit of advice in verse 10. He says, men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous. I like that. It's not going to be tough. It's not going to be slightly edgy. It's going to be disastrous and bring great loss to the ship and cargo and to our own lives also. See, Paul puts this warning out there, okay? Now, he's been involved in difficulties before. Paul is paying attention to all the warning signs they've faced up to this point. The winds are against us. It's getting dangerous. God is trying to communicate something here. So let's heed these warning signs and not go any further. Let's just bunker down here in Fairhaven. Yeah? Now... The issue is, there was another opinion that was also coming at the centurion. He was getting advice from different directions. And it said, instead, he listened to the pilot and the owner of the ship and the majority who wanted to set sail for Phoenix. Okay? A more established port, port that would ultimately be a little bit better to bunker down for the winter. Okay? That's what the pilot and the owner of the ship were saying. Now, unsurprisingly, the centurion goes with the majority. And you can imagine the backlash if the pilot and the owner of the ship and the majority are all saying, let's go one more stop, and you've got an isolated prisoner who's saying, I don't think you should really go, you can imagine who he's going to listen to, don't you? Or you can imagine the backlash if he goes, actually, I know you own the ship, I know you're steering the ship, and I know you're all the majority, but I'm going to go with the one prisoner. Okay? Could have done that, but unsurprisingly he doesn't. They elect to go to Phoenix. And as a result, they don't just end up in Phoenix the winds drag them all the way out into the Adriatic Sea, which is exactly where they didn't want to go. You know, as I was reflecting about this start of Acts 27, I asked myself the question, who do I listen to? Who am I listening to? You know, many of you will know that I'm a lawyer, and a couple of weeks ago I was asked to prepare a contract for a client who's buying a pretty significant business in Tasmania, okay? And he sent me an email that was along the lines of, Paul, before you get started, give me a call so we can talk through any right turn, left turn issues. Now, I have to admit, when I got that email, it was a bit tricky because I didn't exactly know what a right turn, left turn issue is. I'd never actually heard that term before. So it was one of those moments where you go, okay, I'm the lawyer here, I need to sound educated. How do I write back a response that fudges it enough so that he thinks I know what he's talking about when I really have no idea? Now... As I reflected on it a bit more, I think I sort of got the point. Well, I'm still not 100% sure, but I think I got the point of what he was saying. In fact, he was saying, if there are decisions that you need to make, which means the contracts either go in this direction or it's going to go in that direction, give me a call so we can make sure you're right up the right direction. Okay? If we're going to adopt this mechanism for adjusting the purchase price or we're going to adjust this mechanism, then give me a call so we can make sure you put the right one in the document. That makes sense, yeah? Now... I respect that, because in my job, there's a lot of right turn, left turn issues. You can either go down this way, or you can go down that way. I need instructions in terms of which way you want to go. It's up to you, okay? Now, life is like that. Life has a lot of right turn, left turn moments. It's filled with moments where you can either go one way, or you can go another way. And look, I'm not really talking about the trivial stuff. I'm not talking about whether you go Maccas on the way home or whether you have a more healthy salad, okay? I'm talking about more significant issues where you're confronted often with warning signs and there can be significant consequences for going in the way which God doesn't want you to go. It's a right turn, left turn moment. Will I hang out with those sorts of people or will I pursue other friendships? Will I invest into my family or will I prioritize my career? 
Will I continue on with my ministry in a local church or otherwise, or will I pursue my own ambitions? Will I engage in that conduct or will I set myself apart? Will I guard my purity in my relationships and faithfulness in marriage or will I compromise? Right turn, left turn moments. And they're often accompanied by warning signs and significant consequences if we make the wrong choice. So in those moments, I ask myself, and it's good to ask ourselves, who am I listening to? Because I tell you, during those sorts of moments, God's voice will rarely be the voice of the majority in a sense of what the world would say you should do. It'll rarely be the voice that aligns with all everything the world would say. Just do that, that's fine, that's the norm. That's rarely the voice which we should be listening to. God's voice says, listen to my word. Listen to my spirit. Pay attention to what I'm saying. For I love you and I only want the best for you. And that is what we see in Paul. He's not listening to the majority. He's listening to the one who matters. He's not listening to the owner of the ship. He's listening to the one who rules the seas. Paul's heart was first and foremost to listen to God and what he has to say. And may our hearts be the same. Because that's got to be the foundation of the heart of a faithful servant. They've got to be willing to listen. They've got to be tuning in to what God wants from them. So they set sail for Phoenix. Verse 13 through to 44, and this is what happens. They start sailing along the coast, but they're hit by a hurricane-like storm called a northeaster, or a Eurycliden, depending on what translation you're looking at. Bottom line is, these are strong winds. This is like a natural phenomenon. It's really extreme hurricane-like conditions. And it says in verse 15, they try to sail into this wind, but it says they had to give way, and they were driven along. Now, I like that image because they were trying to drive the ship and it's like they can't drive anymore. The winds have taken over and the winds are the one who's steering the ship. They're driving them along. Now, they can't be sure. They're trying to shore up things. So they bring the lifeboats on board and they tie ropes around the ship to try and hold it together. You get a sense of the severity of the storm that they're facing at the moment. And again, in verse 17, it says that they were driven along by the storm. They're, the storm is the one in, that's in control. The storm is the one that's driving them into these waters they didn't want to go. Now remember, their idea was just to go from one port to another, but the storm's taken them all the way out in the Adriatic Sea, which is the difficult waters in the midst of their winter, which they just didn't want to be there at that particular point in time. But they had no choice. That's where they got taken. So they start to throw cargo overboard in verse 20 and the storm rages for many days such that it says they gave up all hope of being saved. They're in complete despair. They've got, they're powerless to do anything about it so they don't know what to do anything about it. It says all hope is lost. Their chances, they're saying, we're lost in the middle of the ocean here. Chances of getting out of this alive are slim to nil. This was clearly no ordinary storm. You know, we can find ourselves in tough waters sometimes, can't we? I referred to that at the start. We can find ourselves in some difficult places that we would never have taken ourselves if we had the choice. But we love to have control over our ship. We love to feel as though we have control over our ship. We want to be, feel as though we're in control of the direction that our life takes. We want to be in control of our finances. We want to be in control of our work situation. We want to be in control of our health. We want to be in control of our kids. That's possible. 
But the reality is we're not, are we? We're not the ones that are in control. God is the one that's in control. But he often needs a northeaster to come along to remind us of that, to shake our security so that we're reminded of the fact that I'm not the one driving anymore. I've actually never been the one driving. God is the one who's behind the northeaster. God is the one who's behind the Euroclide. He's the one who's driving the ship. Often circumstances need to remind us of that. God needs to remind us of that through our circumstances. You know, I'm only in my early 30s, but I can look back and... I I can only say early 30s for about another month. I'm in my early 30s still though, okay? I still am. But I can look back and I can identify those moments where a northeaster has come along and taken me into waters that I really didn't want to be in. You know, when I was going through school, I was always... I was. I was going to do medicine, that was it. There was no plan B because plan Bs are only when you think you're not going to achieve plan A. There was only plan A. It was medicine, that was it. I was going to follow in my father's footsteps. And then the placements came out for university and it wasn't medicine. And it's that moment where you think everything's just been flipped around. I'm in waters I just don't want to be in. 20-week scan of my youngest son, Zachary. You know, we were drifting along thinking that for your second child, you just press repeat on the first one. And then you have a scan, they identify a condition, and, you, and it throws you into turmoil for the next 12 and 18 months. You don't know what's hold. I don't want to be in this place, but that's where you end up. The Northeaster comes along, and it changes your course. And it reminds you that in that moment, you're not the one driving the ship anymore. You actually were never the one driving the ship. You know, there have been other hardships in mine and Melody's family that you can relate to where you just know those circumstances happen and they happen for all of us. If they're not happening for you now, they will happen to you soon because that is life. Circumstances happen where you know you find yourself in a place you wouldn't have chosen to be there. You don't want to be there, but that's where you are. You're in the middle of the Adriatic Sea. We find ourselves in really tough waters at different points. But like I said at the start of this, okay, It's when you're in those tough waters that is when the true nature of your heart starts to get revealed, doesn't it? It's when the true stuff starts to come out. So let's have a look at Paul. Let's have a look at what true stuff started to come out of his heart at this point. And I'm going to read a section, and I'm going to read this bit from verse 21 to 26, because it's a hugely significant speech that he then gives to the crew at this point. All hope is lost, and this is what he says. In verse 21... Chapter 27. Verse 21, chapter 7. Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves this damage. I love that. So you had the chance. You should have listened to me before. You didn't do it. Now look where we are. You might as well listen to me now. But now, in verse 22, I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Like that. Only your ship's going to get destroyed. But none of you will be lost. Last night, an angel of the God whose I am and whom I serve stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. Verse 25. So keep your courage, men, for I have faith in God, that it will happen just as he has told me. If you're underlining people, you probably want to underline that verse. I have faith in God that it will happen just as he has told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. You know, you see, in that talk, 
Paul clearly states in verse 25, in the context where everyone else is in despair, everyone else has lost the hope, he says, you know what, we're all actually going to survive this. And I know it's true because God has told me it's true. And I have faith in God. So what do hardships reveal about Paul's heart? Well, that he has a complete faith and trust in God, doesn't he? He has complete faith and trust in the fact that the ship might be destroyed, but I know that all these people somehow, despite that, are going to be okay. You know, he, knew, he knew that this was ultimately following on from the promise God gave him in chapter 23 of Acts, where God said to Paul, just as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you will testify about me in Rome. That was a promise he made in chapter 23. And here in chapter 27, Paul's saying, I've still got faith in that promises because my God keeps his promise. But what I love about Paul is that his trust wasn't just in his words, it was in his actions. And you see this as you go through. See, after two weeks, they've been driven across the seas. They start to test the depths of um, the waters that they're in, and it indicates that they might be getting closer to land. So they start to drop their anchors. And a group of them pretended as though they were dropping their anchors, but they were actually dropping the lifeboats into the water so that they could take those lifeboats off to the shore and leave the rest of the crew stranded on the ship. Now at this point, this is verse 31, Paul says to the centurion, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. They need to get out of the lifeboats and back on this boat because we are not going to start taking matters into our own hands here. So they get people onto the lifeboats and they do something that's incredibly symbolic. They cut the ropes to the lifeboats. They didn't just get the people back on the boat, they cut the ropes to the lifeboats. Now they're called lifeboats for a reason. They are intended to save people's lives. So by cutting the ropes to the lifeboats, they're saying, we are not going to take action to save ourselves. We are not going to pretend we can save ourselves. We are going to be wholly dependent on God to do the saving. We are depending on Paul's God. As a hugely significant thing for them to bring them in and then cut the lifeboats and just say, whatever will be, will be. We're trusting God now. We're not going to take matters in our own hands. And then Paul brings them together. They have a kind of last supper moment where they share a meal together and they start to throw grain overboard to lighten the ship. You know, this is a picture of a crew who had observed Paul's trust in God and were trying to replicate the same. They were wanting to depend on him also. So the lifeboats were cut, the grains thrown overboard. They're pulling themselves together and engaging in this communion-like activity. They're trying to get alongside Paul and say, we're going to have the faith that you are because we can't save ourselves anymore. We don't even want to try. We're just going to cut the lifeboats away. Paul said he had faith in God that it would unfold just his promise. But it's one thing to declare, I have faith in God. We do that each week, don't we? So I've got faith in God. It's another thing to support that with our actions and actually live it. You know, when we face difficulties in life, when a northeaster or a Euroclidon sweeps through, is the faith that we profess supported by the way we live? Do our actions reflect a heart that has a deep, 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 Trust in God. Let me put it another way. When trouble comes, do we run to the lifeboats and try and get ourselves out of it? Do we formulate our own kind of strategy and action plan so that we can somehow get ourselves out of this mess? Or are we willing to cut the lifeboats, 
throw the grain overboard by placing our faith and hope in God, by returning to his word, by getting on our knees in prayer, and by declaring that, God, you are the one who is mighty to save, so you have to do it. I'll be obedient and do whatever you want me to do, but you're the one who's mighty to save. I'm going to depend on you, and I'm going to trust in you 100%. Yeah, I've said this before. I think we are willing to trust God to a point. I think we're willing to trust him to a point where it's still comfortable. We're willing to trust him to a point where we still have our exit plan. We've still got those emergency lifeboats if it really goes pear-shaped. But because of that, we stop short of trusting him with everything. With all that we are, with all that we have. Trusting him with a lot. However, God asks us to submit ourselves to him entirely, not holding anything back. God says, cut the lifeboats and trust me 100%. And when Paul is under the microscope for this two-week period, we see just that, don't we? We see a heart who is filled with this trust and faith in God. He declares it and shares it with the crew, and then he backs it up by the way he lives. And we can trust him, can't we? Can't we? We can trust him. We can trust him because he's a God who always keeps his promises. And you see this. The ship then is, hits the ground, runs aground, it gets shipwrecked. And they basically say, every man for himself. If you can't swim, grab a plank, try and get you to the shore. If you can swim, swim. And the crew try to say, they, they're worried about all the prisoners escaping. So they try to, or they have a plan to kill the prisoners. And the centurion says, out of respect for Paul, make sure they don't, they don't do that. The centurion is clearly working on, uh, sorry, God is clearly working on the centurion's heart here. And so it says in verse 44, in this way, everyone reached land in safety. You know, God said to Paul, you'll lose the ship, but everyone will be safe. You get to verse 44, they've lost the ship, but everyone is safe. God always keeps his promises, doesn't he? That's why we trust him. Because it will always unfold exactly how God intends it to unfold. It will always unfold, maybe not the way we had in mind, maybe not the way we would have chosen, but it's always, there are, it always happens the way God intends it to happen. That's why we are to listen to him. That's why we are to trust him, because he is good. He is complete. And he loves his people, and he wants to look after us. And he always keeps his promises. See, then we get to chapter 28. Completely neglected my slides, but they're not particularly detailed. So you're officially up to speed. They get to 28. They arrive on the island of Malta, okay, and they land ashore. It says it's raining and cold, as you'd expect, because they've just been shipwrecked by a storm. So the islanders try and um, uh, they welcome them, and they actually try and build a fire so that they can help give them some warmth, try and dry them off, help with food and so forth. So Paul, he collects wood for this fire. And he was placing on the fire, it says, then a viper emerges from the wood and it says it fastens itself to his hand. Okay? And he used that language fastened to, to tell us for sure it was a venomous bite. It's not like it just brushed Paul and went to the side. It actually latches itself on. You know, that would ordinarily have been a death sentence. So when the locals see this, they assume he's one of the prisoners who really must have done something wrong. 
this is a murderer now who's getting an eye for an eye. You know, the gods are striking him down just like he must have struck someone else down. But Paul, he doesn't really seem to panic. He simply shakes off the snake into the fire and he shows no ill effects whatsoever. And then it says they've changed their minds. They're amazed by this. So all of a sudden, he's gone from murderer to God in their eyes. You know, when I think through that section, I try and imagine how Paul must have been feeling when he had a viper attached to his hand. And this is after a pretty long journey at this point. He's gone through all these hurricane-like conditions. The ship's just been wrecked. He's swum himself to the shore, and he's greeted with a viper that jumps out of the wood and latches itself onto him. And it sheds new light on a passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Now, Paul wrote this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and it's a passage where he's reflecting on the struggles that he um, endured in the province of Asia. And it may have been referring to this moment, it may have been referring to other struggles that he referred to, but the principles are clearly applicable. In 2 Corinthians 1 verse 9, Paul said this, In our hearts we felt the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves but on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope and that he will continue to deliver us. You know, on the island of Malta, it's this deliverance that Paul experiences firsthand. He had a sentence of death that latched onto his hand, but he just shook it off and God delivered, it, delivered him from it. You know, Shabu talked before about our understanding of the gospel and what that meant. You know, one of the foundational concepts and principles of the gospel is this idea of deliverance and salvation, isn't it? You know, no matter who we are, no matter where we're born, no matter what community we're from, no matter what decade we were born, sin has fastened itself to all of us. It has fastened itself to our hearts and it fills it with a poison. That poison is idols that can consume our heart and it's the mentality that says, I want to be God rather than worship God. That's sin. It fastens itself on like that viper. But more importantly, sin brings with it a death sentence. The wages of that sin is death. The scriptures are clear on that. So Jesus came to pay that death, to die in our place, so that through him we could know forgiveness, we could know deliverance, we could know freedom, we could know love, we could know mercy, we could know grace, and we could know a new life. And outside of Jesus, we can know none of those things. That's the gospel. We had a viper that latched to our hearts, and so Jesus died and says, I'll take that death sentence for you. Just shake it off. Ask forgiveness, and you are forgiven. Receive my Holy Spirit, you have new life. That is salvation. Amen? That's our gospel. That's part of it. Shabu will probably have other things that should shape this church, but that's a core foundational element of it. And we see it here in Malta. But importantly, we don't just see it here in Paul directly. We see it in the other people around Paul. They're all amazed by him at this point. Okay, He's just escaped death. So they say, you better come meet the chief, of, chief official of the island, Publius. He happens to be sick. Got a fever, dysentery, the disease doesn't matter. Ultimately, he had a condition which he could not heal himself. Paul goes to him, places hands on him, prays, heals him. Amazing. You can then see the ripple effects through the island, you know. People then start to get all their sick. Oh, this is pretty good. They bring all their sick to Paul and says Paul heals them. 
He heals them all. You can imagine the impact this person is having on the island of Malta at this point. He's been bitten by a viper, yet survived. He's healed their chief official, and he's proceeding to heal everyone else on the island from their various diseases. You know, why does all this happen? You could have done chapter 28 by saying, he arrived on Malta, they changed ships, and they just kept sailing for Italy. You could have done that, but instead we get these 10 verses here, which are here for a purpose. You know, through so much of Scripture, the physical is used to illustrate the spiritual. Physical circumstances are used to demonstrate and remind us of spiritual truths. And you see it through a lot of Scripture. You know, one example in Jesus' ministry. Do you remember the healing of a paralytic man? His his friends brought him along. Jesus was speaking in someone's house. They couldn't fit through the door. But they wanted him to heal this person because he couldn't walk. So, So they couldn't go through the door, so they went up to the... Roof, yeah? Dug a hole in the roof, lowered him down in front of Jesus, okay? So Jesus is now standing there with a paralytic man in front of him, okay? What you expect is that he would reach out to his hands, to his legs, sorry, and say, You're healed, just get out of here. Do you remember what the first thing that Jesus said to him was? Your sins are forgiven. Doesn't mention the physical at all, it goes straight to the spiritual. It says, Your sins are forgiven. That causes a bit of a raucous. They're like, Well, who are you to forgive sins? bit of a dialogue about that he says well tells the man get up and walk and he does he was healed as a demonstration that if i say he's healed he's going to be healed and if i say his sins are forgiven they're going to be forgiven the physical intimately linked with the spiritual and we can see the same sort of idea here in acts 28 where we're seeing people who are struck with a condition they have a condition of sin they that they have conditions that they can't deal with themselves until god offers them deliverance until God offers them the salvation that they clearly couldn't save themselves from. The whole time Paul is on the island of Malta, everything that happens to him and everything that happens to the people around him screams out salvation. Everything that happens. You know, Paul is here, he's saying, God is at work at me, God has delivered me, and God can deliver you as well. He offers you salvation too. You know, in what ways might you need to claim that salvation this morning and experience God's deliverance once again? It might be that you have your own viper that's latched on you. You know, a wrestle which you know is, is spiritual as much as it is physical, whether it's an unhealthy relationship or friendship circle, whether it's something that started innocently but has turned into a bit of an idol, whether it's your career, your financial security, or sporting clubs, whatever. Whether it's a struggle with something else that you know is detrimental to your soul, such as pornography, social habits which you know are harmful, other forms of addictions. What is it that is in your life for which you know you need God's help to shake loose? And it may be that there's no one viper that is kind of feels or is latched on you, but there's a general condition of the heart that needs healing. It's a general disease of the heart, which means that life has gradually become all about you and less about God. A condition of the heart whereby our priorities are more about my plans and my goals and my purposes rather than God's. A disease of the heart, which means we have the flame is gone. The passion for his word is gone. The awe of God has gone. 
the contrast between me and the world has become negligible. So many of us, we find ourselves in that place all the time. And if that is true for us, the incredible reminder we have in Acts 28 is that God's desire is to heal the diseases of the heart. He wants to offer salvation to that. He wants to offer and speak into our lives grace and forgiveness and hope in the midst of that. And he wants to change our heart to the heart of a faithful servant, to a heart that listens, to a heart that trusts God entirely by what we say and what we do, and to a heart that knows his salvation. Church, my prayer is that God would give us that kind of heart. Because he needs to change it, doesn't he? We can't change our heart around. God needs to do the work through his Holy Spirit. As we believe in Jesus Christ, as we lay ourselves before him and say, Lord, I am yours, 100%. I'm not going to trust you up to a point. I'm going to trust you with everything. Then he takes that and he makes us new. And he speaks into our lives deliverance and salvation and love and hope where before there was none. May we submit ourselves to Jesus, lay ourselves down, and just say, change my heart. Give me the heart of a faithful servant, a heart that listens to your word, your voice, a heart that trusts you with everything, all that I am, all that I have, and a heart that know and experiences firsthand the reality of your saving grace. That's the heart of a faithful servant. And that's what we see in Paul. And that's what God, by his grace, wants for us as well. So may we, as a church and as individuals, lay our souls at the foot of the cross and pray that by his grace he might grant us a heart that listens, that trusts him, and that knows his salvation. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for... The fact that in the midst of the chaos, you are still there. You are still driving the ship, Lord. You are still in control, Lord. We thank you that you are a God who sent Jesus so that we could have a new life and a new heart. Lord, we thank you that in him we have salvation and grace. We thank you that through Jesus we have forgiveness of our sins. We have healing. Lord, we thank you that No matter how difficult our waters might be, we can rest in the fact that you are in control. We can trust you, for you keep your promises. And you promise that you will love us always. As we draw near to you, you will draw near to us. Lord, may we as a church listen to your voice, trust in your ways, and know the amazing glory of your salvation. And pray this in your name. And everyone said...